Since its founding, Virginia has executed around 1,300 people, more than any other state in the country. But just a few months ago, Virginia became the first Southern state to abolish the death penalty. Governor Ralph Northam announced the big news. Ending the death penalty comes down to one fundamental question, one question, is it fair? But we all know that the death penalty is applied differently based on who you are, and the system has gotten it wrong. And that is why it is time in this Commonwealth of Virginia to end the death penalty. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, abolishing the death penalty. In 1995, Sabrina Butler-Smith became the first woman to be exonerated from death row in the United States. Since her exoneration, she's been giving talks around the world, seeking to end capital punishment. She says wrongful convictions like hers happen all the time, and you can't undo an execution. Sabrina Butler-Smith shared her story with With Good Reasons' Matt Darrow. Sabrina Butler-Smith was 17 years old in Columbus, Mississippi, when her life changed forever. She had just put her baby to sleep and decided to go on a quick jog around her neighborhood. But when she got back... I went in the kitchen first. And when I went in the kitchen, I got a bottle and I went in this room. And right then I panicked because I knew something was wrong when I saw that he wasn't breathing. Her mind raced. She had no one to talk to, no one to tell her what to do. All she knew was that her baby needed help. I went downstairs and was beating on all doors, trying to get somebody to help me. And a girl from an inn apartment came and grabbed my son. And she took him in and she started CPR. And when she did that, I ran outside to try to get somebody else to take us to the hospital. And so I ran back in. And when I did that, she told me to hold his nose, blow in his mouth and press in his stomach. She didn't tell me the right way. So I applied adult CPR to him all the way to the hospital. Baby Walter was pronounced dead at the hospital. When the doctors asked her what happened, she did what most teenagers do when they think they're in trouble. She lied. You know, the thought in my head was that I was in trouble. So I just thought to lie. Most kids, when they get in trouble, that's what they do. And so I lied. I wasn't honest at first. I said, you know, all kind of things that I thought would sound different than what really happened. What happened next would come back to haunt Sabrina during her trial. The police interrogated her for four grueling hours. And by the end of it, she had signed a confession statement. It was exhausting and scary at the same time because they were jumping in my face like they wanted to fight me and all that. And when I finally decided to tell them the truth, they didn't want to hear any of that. They were balling up what I was writing, throwing it in the trash and saying, that's not what happened. You beat your baby. You stomped him. This is what you did. You killed that baby. You know, they kept on saying that to me. And uh, he wrote the statement and shoved it in my face and says, now sign it. This is what you do. You know, and so... The only thing I knew to do was to sign at the very bottom of the paper. So pretty much they took advantage because I didn't know anything about the law. You know, here I am, this poor black kid, you know, not legally knowing anything, and they took advantage. That's exactly what they did. Sabrina was arrested and charged with murdering her child, which made her eligible for the death penalty. Her trial was set to begin in March 1990. She says she always felt like it was doomed from the start. When I first came in contact with my attorneys, I saw them two days before trial. I had been sitting in the county jail a whole year before I even saw them. So therefore, I had no trial preparations. They didn't tell me nothing. And just looking at the jury, I knew then that they were going to just throw me away. I knew it. Because when I saw all the white people and nobody looked like me, I didn't have a prayer. So when the guilty verdict rang through the courtroom, she wasn't exactly surprised. When the judge told me to stand before him, and he said, I sentence you to die by lethal injection and may God have mercy on your soul. I said, no, may God have mercy on your soul because you don't know what you just did. And I walked out. I mean, it wasn't nothing else left to say because I knew that my life was over. I knew that they was going to do what they did. Sabrina says going to prison was the worst experience of her life. For the first couple of weeks, she cried every day. When we got there, they stripped us of all our belongings, all of our clothes, they put bug spray in our hair. I had to go in this room and, and just be humiliated. Uh, stand in a bullpen, waiting for a couple of hours to get fingerprinted and given a tag with the word murderer on it. And uh, once I got into uh, 
maximum security. I was put in a six by nine cell, no bigger than your bathroom. I had rats and ants and stuff in my cell. To me, that sounds bad, but the worst part was actually knowing my death date. And that was July the 2nd of 1990. July 2nd, 1990, just five months after a trial. On the surface, it was a typical Monday, but as most people were rolling out of bed to go to work, Sabrina was preparing to die. Most of what she remembers from that day, she can't put into words. I paced the floors. I was listening for every sound, every chain, everything. You know, my thought was how you see it on TV, they come down this long hall and they have the ball and chain and all that, and you on one side and there's the preacher. I actually thought that from watching TV. That's just how not knowing I was when it came to the death penalty. She would have been executed on that day had it not been for Susan, a friend she made on death row who had a cell right next to hers. She was the only other person on death row with me at the time. And so we would get down on the floor and there was a toilet that separated the two of us and we would talk between the toilets. And so she basically helped me through a lot. Susan told her that the state was required to exhaust all remedies before it could carry out the death penalty, meaning Sabrina had a right to appeal her case. So she filed an appeal with the Supreme Court of Mississippi and attorneys Clive Stafford-Smith and Rob McDuff took on her case. This time, she knew things were going to be different. Clive came to the prison and he sat down and he met me where I was. You know, because that time I was like 19, 20, you know, like that. He talked to me, you know, because I was still a kid. And Clive talked to me and he explained what was going on, the good, the bad, all of it. You know, which I never knew. I never knew what my son died from, never knew anything. All those years I sat there and nobody told me nothing. And so Clive explained it to me. He even brought artwork for me. He was an exceptional attorney. And I think that's the way it should be when you have a person that is, you know, on trial for their lives. During her second trial, she found out her son had heart problems, kidney disease, and chronic bowel syndrome. And her lawyers were able to show that his death had nothing to do with Sabrina. After deliberating for an hour, the jury came to a decision. And when they called out the verdict and they told us to stand up, man, you talking about that day right there? I thought I, my legs was going to fall. I mean, when he said not guilty, I had spaghetti noodles for legs, and I fell. And my attorneys had to pick me up off the floor. I just was overcome with, with relief and joy that the truth was finally told. You know, after six and a half years, that was crazy. Sabrina was exonerated on December 17th, 1995. Ever since, she's been on a mission to end capital punishment. She says there should be consequences for committing a crime, but far too many innocent lives have been taken by the death penalty. As long as you have a human element surrounding the death penalty, there shouldn't be a death penalty because you're going to already always make mistakes. I don't care what you say, you're going to make mistakes. And I feel like if a person committed a crime, if, they, if it deserves life, give them life. That way, if you make a mistake, you can fix that. But you can't fix somebody when you kill someone. What you going to go back and do? Say, oh, my bad? Life after prison hasn't been easy for Sabrina. It's been over 25 years since she was exonerated. But she still feels like she hasn't been able to properly grieve baby Walter's death. When I got out, it took me two years to find little Walter. And when I found him, they had him buried in the woods in a dilapidated cemetery that I couldn't get to. So I decided to pull his death certificate so that I could get him exhumed to a better place. When I got the death certificate, it still stated he was murdered by his mother. So I had to sue them just to try to get it, his death certificate fixed. And it took me, I did it in June of 2020, and just got it done this year, um, where they fixed his death certificate, just like that. But I couldn't have him exhumed because of how he was buried. And that hurts because I couldn't go, you know, where he is because of the earth is taking it back. And it's a horrible spot you can't get in. Earlier this year, Sabrina opened a halfway house for exonerated women called SMJK, Mission from God with Hands of Hope. And she continues to speak publicly about the ills of capital punishment. So far, her advocacy work has played a key role in abolishing the death penalty in Washington State and New Hampshire. While 27 states still have the death penalty in place, Sabrina's hopeful she might one day see it outlawed throughout the country. For With Good Reason, I'm Matt Dara. 
Deirdre Enright is probably best known as the founding director of the University of Virginia's Innocence Project, representing wrongfully convicted Virginians, or for being featured on the first season of the hit investigative podcast, Serial. But before all that, she spent decades defending people on death row. She says she attended one of her clients' executions, an experience that stuck with her ever since. Deirdre is a law professor at the University of Virginia. Deirdre, before you became director of the Innocence Project, you represented clients for a couple decades who were facing the death penalty. That seems like an incredibly stressful job. Was it tough to bear mentally that their lives were in your hands? Yes, it was utterly overwhelming. And I thought that representing innocent people, you know, when I transitioned from death penalty to innocence, I thought that that would be less stressful. But it turns out that the stress of the fact that somebody might be executed (laughs) is really not any different than the fact that somebody might spend the rest of their life in prison for something they didn't do. So what keeps you going, I think, is first of all, them, the clients. And the fact that innocent people getting convicted is terrible, but guilty people getting convicted of things they didn't do or getting convicted in an unconstitutional manner is also a terrible, terrible thing. The story that's told at trial in death penalty cases or innocence cases is so far from the story that we uncover while we're investigating old cases. And getting to retell their stories correctly, there's a lot of satisfaction in that. What's it like to defend someone who you know has most likely committed a horrible crime? Um, I'm thinking back to my first case that I worked on while I was in law school here in Charlottesville. And then I represented him when he was on death row after he had been found guilty. And his whole backstory was that he had been put in institutions starting at the age of four because he'd been sexually abused by some male relative. Eventually, he was just put in Virginia institutions. I think he'd been in every one in the state by the time he was released. And he was released at the age of 21 with a notation in his file that said, do not release him. He is a ticking time bomb. And they let him go and gave him $40 and put him on a bus to Florida. And he no more got to the bus station in Florida than he rolled a drunk person to steal his money and found a hooker and bought cocaine. And then not knowing what to do, he got back on the bus and came back to Virginia. And I mean, I think maybe 30 days to the day is when he murdered an uncle. And it was always my theory that that might have been the uncle that was the reason he was sexually abused to begin with. But I was never able to prove that, and I don't know that. But it's also 30 days is the amount of time that antipsychotic medications wear off. And he didn't have a doctor or anybody to prescribe them, and he had been getting them while he was institutionalized. So it was a, it was a huge theory of mine that that was part of the problem as well. But... He had an IQ that varied between 67 and 71. And he was much more like a child to me than like a client. He didn't care about what I was doing. He didn't care about habeas. He he was not interested in constitutional claims. And he wanted to talk about things my son, who was six years old, was doing. And he wanted to talk about whether he could get cigarettes or sneakers for Christmas. And when he would get out of control at the prison, which was not infrequent. I would go there and I would talk to him like he was a child. I would say, you know, Arthur Ray Jenkins, you sit down in that chair right now. We're going to have a talk about your behavior, you know, and he would do exactly what I said, (laughs) which my own children don't do. You actually attended his execution and you've said you were so shaken. You never did that again. Tell me about that. Yeah. I, I, I didn't think that I should ever go to one because I thought, You're standing there watching a bunch of people kill someone who can't possibly fight back or do anything. Like, it just seems like it's wrong for anyone to stand there and watch. But you went to support him, right? Well, that's the thing is that um, he had lawyers at a law firm that he didn't know and me. And, And the idea of him being alone for a whole day and all the things they do during the day as they get ready. And I just thought, well, he just cannot be alone. Like, there's just no... and. You know, of course, it was the longest day in the world. And yet 
you wanted it to keep being longer, you know, but he kept forgetting why we were there. He couldn't, you know, he couldn't remember. He kept saying, are we going to talk about the habeas? And I would have to remind him that, you know, no, that this was the execution day. And he would say, oh, I don't, I don't want to talk about all that. I don't want to talk about, you know. So when it came time, it was like he couldn't believe that this was actually happening, right? And so, you know, he was yelling and saying, Deirdre, make them stop, tell them to stop, you know, and it's just brutal. He was grabbing you. Yeah, and they had to, like, pull him away. Um, And, you know, he's sobbing. And um, my husband came with me, thank God. And um, after they take him from you, you go into the witness room, right? They open a door and you go into this witness room to watch from there, to watch what happens. And when we opened the door to go into the witness room, I don't know if you know this, but in Virginia, you can volunteer to witness an execution. And by law, there have to be, I think it's six witnesses to executions. So people submit their names and they get drawn as a lottery kind of thing. So there were six people in that room. And when the door opened, I realized they were laughing and they were laughing at him and me and crying and him being wrenched away. And and they were law students. <laughs> it was six law students who had um, put in to watch this execution. But, you know, I just, I'll, I'll never get over just standing in a room and like everyone's face, I'm sure they're told, the guards are told to, to do it that way, but um, everybody's absolutely um, blank, except for Arthur Ray Jenkins, who's crying. Um, I could, I, you know, I had other clients after that and I would go and, but I would leave before um, the execution happened because I just could never do it again. What about the execution itself? His beseeching you and his upset probably would have been the thing that upset me most, even more than his actual death. It's and, and to me, especially, especially when you know that this person couldn't live in the world without help, and everybody knew that, but there were so many ways in which we failed him. And then after all these years in prison, the need to execute him has become so strung out. And, you know, to me, he was, he was like a child. So, you know, as like, if the idea that you would not comfort somebody in that kind of pain and instead stand in a room and watch people kill him (laughs) is just, it's brutal. And to me, (laughs) to me, it feels like this is the part of us in the United States that we act like these things happen in other countries right, in countries that are not as civilized. But, like, the death penalty in the United States is the most uncivilized um, thing we do. Other than the possibility we could be killing an innocent person, what to you is the strongest argument against putting to death people who've committed, let's say, heinous crimes? Well, as you said, right, the idea that execute innocent people is is the horror. And my problem is that I know this system that we use for getting to that conclusion. And that system targets poor people and people of color and people who have no means to defend themselves. And so the people we end up executing aren't the people who deserve it most, it's the people who had the worst lawyers and the people who had the meanest prosecutors and the people whose jury was unconstitutionally formed. You know, there's just so, there's so many places in the system, in the march to death in litigation, where things are not done correctly or right or fairly. And so it will always end up being arbitrary who, who ends up being executed. I'm trying to remember the case, the Supreme Court case, where the justice said, you know, I I no longer want to tinker with the machinery of death because that's what it is, right? Is playing around, trying to see if we can find a way to do this right. And, you know, the, the people who end up on death row are never the children of wealthy people. They've almost always had an unfair path to the execution chamber. And often, as in the case of this man, no mother. You know, not even the buffer of a loving family, right? Right. And, you know, I I know people have will criticize um, probably 
my relationships and a lot of lawyers I know who do what we do, you know, we become incredibly close. We know everything about their lives. We know their families as much as we can. We've spent time with them. But that's not what happens um, with the lawyers they get at trial. I always feel that you have to get into the weeds and hear the horrible stories and have your heart broken uh, over and over again in order to tell the story right. But that's not what, that's not the kind of lawyers that people get in the, you know, in the beginning. And that's what's messed up about it is it's so ass backwards, forgive me, that the, the really good lawyers come in in post-conviction and, you know, dig in and find the things that should have been found on the front end, you know. How stunned were you when Virginia abolished the death penalty? Surely for decades you thought the day would never come. That it's so it's so funny that you ask that question because first of all, like every year for years, people say to us, Hey, there's a big move on the General Assembly and we're gonna try and abolish the death penalty. And we would all go, Yeah, that's great. Good luck. Because it just never happened, right? And we would talk with people in the office about, you know, do we think it'll happen in our time? And my husband and I were saying, probably not while while we're working. And so when it happened, I think we kind of didn't believe it. And then people started coming to our house and leaving presents and thank you notes and baskets of food. And we were, we were sort of stunned. It took us a really long time to embrace that it had really happened and that it was real. And yet while Virginia became the first Southern state to do it this year, it's going to be an uphill battle in other Southern states, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's still a very strong, you know, eye for an eye currency in our country. And people people don't want to hear the backstory. They want things to be simple and clear. And so you start talking about, well, let's talk about his background. Let's talk about where he came from. Let's talk about, and people, you know, say, my father beat me and I haven't killed anyone or, you know. So right. I think there's a lot of people that just like the clarity of you do this, that's going to happen. But also this feeling a lot of people have, very powerful feeling that you do the crime, you do the time. That, you know, you did this, this is your punishment. And also, as we said earlier, this is justice. Sorry, but it's justice. <laughs> Yep. I think of this woman whose story I heard, who she's, she was a psychiatrist, psychologist, and her daughter had been murdered um, horribly. And she spent like 13 years, you know, being at every hearing, you know, uh, saying, I want him executed. I want him executed. And, and eventually that happened. And then she said she went into this sort of deep dive for a couple of years of thinking, well, why don't I feel any better? And in fact, now, the more I think about it, why do I feel worse? And look at the 13 years I spent. And she went back to school. She became a psychologist. And she also would go around speaking about that, that for her, there was no closure. You founded the Innocence Project in 2008 and did amazing work with that organization ever since. But you've just founded a new organization called Project for Informed Reform, Tell me about it and why it is different from the Innocence Project and needed. So it all started in my head when I was talking one day to Adrian Bennett, was the head of the parole board at the time, and she was considering one of our cases. And there was a lot of public pressure on her and driven in part by me to grant a pardon or grant parole or I don't even remember what case we were talking about. But And she, in exasperation, sort of said to me, I love what you do. And I love when these guys walk out of prison and go back and try and build their lives. And she said, but, you know, for the love of God, is anybody going to try and fix the things that caused these to begin with so that we never get here? And I remembered thinking, oh, yeah, that's my that's the last thing I have to do. Like the Innocence Project is up and running. It's doing great. It's fabulous. Um, but I want to try and start something that does front end control, right? Where we take the mistakes that we know happened from all those cases, find data and hard evidence that shows how we should be doing things and why we shouldn't be doing them the way we do them now. Name some specific problems that you have seen for years along the way 
to the death penalty cases, what are some areas you already see for improvements in favor of fairness and equity? So I have, there's biggies, of course, right? In in innocence project cases, the, the red flags for an innocence case is that there's prosecutorial misconduct or police misconduct. And that usually in almost all our cases, we find what we call Brady material, which is material that was in the prosecutor's files, hands, police files, or they should have, either they knew about it or they should have known about it, that wasn't turned over to the defense. And uh, forensics, junk science, um, there's really only one reliable forensic evidence, DNA. Um, And yet we use all sorts of other things at the same time. There's a lot of false confession cases Right. Um, Because police can lie to you and um, intimidate you. And, you know, there's a lot of if you don't say this, you're going to get the needle. That used to be a biggie. Or if you don't admit to this, then we're going to charge your wife with this. Or, you know, an eyewitness has already told us that they saw you. And even when it's not true. Right. Um, So that's that's a biggie, too. If you could have Project for Informed Reform create one win right off the bat, what would your hope be for it? So I have like six issues that I'm considering doing right now because it all starts in January, the clinic starts. But one of the ones that was most interesting to me is um, I've worked on shaken baby cases in the last couple of years. And uh, those cases are increasingly under the microscope for the science behind them because the law allows you to presume trauma has occurred to a baby if certain conditions are met. And it's turning out that many of those conditions can be caused by a billion other reasons, viruses, genetics, whatever. And the the battle between the, the people who believe in this shaken baby that it happens and the people who don't is ferocious. And I talked to a prosecutor recently and she is she prosecutes shaken baby cases, but we were talking about whether or not between the two of us and a team of students and research, if we couldn't come up with a list of things that you have to look for, test for, consider before saying, this is a traumatic case, this baby was injured. I don't know if I could do that, but I would sure like to do that. And I would sure like to see if I could bring those sides together with facts. Deirdre Enright, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Sarah, thank you for having me. I love your show. Deirdre Enright is a law professor at the University of Virginia. She's also founder of the Innocence Project and the new Project for Informed Reform. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Since 1976, 17 women have been executed in the United States. Mary Atwell is author of Wretched Sisters, Gender and Capital Punishment. She says women facing the death penalty are held to a different standard than their male counterparts. She says their crimes are portrayed as unfeminine, and this gender bias often leads to harsher sentencing. Mary Atwell is Professor Emeritus of Criminal Justice at Radford University. Mary, you've devoted your career to putting an end to capital punishment. What was it about capital punishment that first arrested your attention? Well, I had been teaching criminal justice for several years, and I think what really moved me to become more and more interested in the topic was hearing Sister Helen Prejean speak at one of our criminal justice national conferences. And uh, it was several years after she'd written Dead Man Walking. And I was kind of familiar with the book, but I think her own presentation was so inspirational and was so moving to hear about the injustices that she highlighted in the way the capital system worked. And I think what really struck me, of course, is that the mistakes that are made in the capital system cannot be repaired if the wrong person is executed or if a person is executed without due process. 
you can't go back and fix that. And so I think the the seriousness and the permanence of capital sentences and the problems within the system really moved me to think more about it. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn about it. What was your reaction when Virginia, one of the most active death penalty states, abolished the death penalty earlier this year? Well, it was just unbelievable in a way. Um, I I had been serving on the uh, board of Virginians for Alternative to the Death Penalty for a number of years. And of course, that was always our goal was to see abolition. But I think if you had asked me four or five years ago when we were going to abolish capital punishment, I would have been doubtful that I would see it in my lifetime. Now, of course, Virginia had not been executing many people and hadn't executed anyone for a number of years and the number of death sentences were going down. But back in the 80s and 90s, we had a very active death row. So, you know, it was there had been a lot of enthusiasm for it here in this state. In 2007, you wrote Wretched Sisters, which spotlights 14 women, now 17, who've been put to death since 1976. Tell me a little bit about the women. What were the common themes that ran through their cases? Well, I think like everybody who is sentenced to death, they tended to be poor. They tended to have histories of abuse in their lives, uh, both physical abuse, sexual abuse, domestic abuse. All of those um, were common experiences of the women who were sent to death row and who were executed For the most part, they were people who had not had a history of committing violent crimes in their lives. So they weren't career criminals by any stretch of the imagination, with possibly one exception out of all of them. But I think the thing I I learned the most from studying the cases of these women is the way in which their failure to be living up to the expectations of what good women were like was used against them in their trials and in the media when they were accused of a capital offense. It plays upon the emotions of the jury and it plays upon the community outrage. If you can say, not only did this person commit a murder, but she was a cheating wife or neglected her children, or in earlier years, um, the fact of being a lesbian would be used against her. So unconventional things that made someone less of a perfect woman would be used to, I think, make the jury see her as somebody who was at least eligible to be put to death. There's so many death penalty injustices, and so many more men have been executed than women. But just focusing on the cases of the women, would you say that violations of gender norms are used more often to condemn these women than happens with men violating their gender norms. Yes, yes, because I think for men, being tough and even being violent is not a violation of gender norms. It might be a a violation of good behavior. Um, And so when a man commits violence, it can be seen as just extreme masculinity. Whereas when a woman commits violence, it's seen, at least traditionally, as a betrayal of everything that's expected of her. So it works very differently for men and women, it seems to me. Let me give a couple of examples that you make. In 2010, Teresa Lewis was the first woman to be executed in Virginia by lethal injection. You've said you think her case reflects deep-seated gender bias within the criminal justice system. How did her case reflect that? Well, the crime for which she was executed was the murder of her husband and her stepson. And the two co-conspirators, if you will, with her, the man she was having an affair with and his associate, did not receive the death penalty, although they are the ones who committed the murders. Teresa didn't shoot anybody. And they said that Teresa had hired these guys to kill her husband and that she was going to share his life insurance with them. And therefore, it was murder for hire and therefore she was eligible for death. Um, The two men who were her associates 
they had much better lawyers than she did, or at least more experienced lawyers. And so they were able to deal with the prosecutor to get them a life sentence if they pleaded guilty. Her lawyers said, oh, go ahead and plead guilty and go before a judge rather than a jury because a judge won't sentence a woman to death, especially since these guys didn't get sentenced to death. Well, they did. Was this a case where either the judge or the prosecutor had said no real woman would do that? Yes, exactly. And um, and then the judge said she is the head of the serpent um, <laughs> in this in this case, which you know made her seem even devilish. I think in in his description, they also mentioned that after her husband um, was killed, she called his his place of employment to find out when she could collect his death benefit. And then she bought herself a new car. So um, this was also something used against her because it was kind of greedy and frivolous and so on. So in in many, many ways, uh, she was portrayed as having not lived up to the expectations, the gender norms that she should have. There's another case, Lisa Montgomery, that was especially tragic. Lisa Montgomery was actually executed earlier this year. Tell me about her story. Lisa Montgomery was executed in January of this year as one of the group of federal executions under the Trump administration in the last days before um, the, the end of the Trump administration. She was the only woman, of course. She was the first woman to be executed by the federal government since 1954. She was a woman who had suffered terrible terrible abuse through her whole life. I mean, as a child and all the way growing up and into adulthood. And the crime for which she was executed was a a horrible crime. She um, killed a woman and took the fetus from the pregnant woman who was carrying the fetus. She strangled her and then removed the fetus from her womb it was almost nine months, um, almost fully to term. And, and in fact, the child survived. She's still alive. And so she should have been probably sentenced to life in a mental health facility. But because of her poor representation and because the prosecution portrayed her crime as, of course, a particularly horrible one. And then they they treated her history of abuse as an excuse. They kept talking about, well, it's just the abuse excuse. And so she was sentenced to death. And again, the horribleness of the crime certainly held against her. But I think the failure to recognize the seriousness of the abuse she had suffered and the fact that the lawyers who prosecuted her, talked about, well, she was a terrible mother. Her children were dirty. Her home was filthy. Um, she didn't take care of her responsibilities. Well, she couldn't. The woman was was not well enough to do those things. You write the news media had a hand in casting the crimes committed by both of these women and others as unfeminine. Read an example of a news story like that. Okay, um, this is about Marilyn Plants, who was executed in Oklahoma, and her case is very similar to Teresa Lewis's. They're kind of uncannily similar. This is a uh, an article that appeared in the Oklahoma City newspaper. Um, it talked about how Marilyn dumped her children with a babysitter and headed off to a park where young black boys hung out and crack cocaine was the drug of choice. No one suspected that she was out to find youthful sex in sleazy motels with trim young men to whom she gave cash and drugs. She had chosen Cliff Bryson, and she and the youth drove around in her sporty Camaro. She provided him with money, enough rock cocaine to keep him high most of the time, and all the sex he could handle. And it goes on from there, but that gives you a sense of, I think, what that was like. Not only did it play up the fact that she had this relationship with this guy. He was younger than she was, and he was black, and she was white. So there was racism pulled into this stereotype as well. She was someone who um, was marginally mentally disabled. She had been abused by her husband. And then this kind of story in the press, you can imagine how difficult it would be to get an unbiased jury with that kind of story appearing in the press. Why do you think the U.S., is among the handful of nations that executes so many of its people. 
I mean, it's up there with Sudan and Iran and Iraq and Pakistan and China. Why the U.S. when Europe has moved away from capital punishment? And it's, yes, countries we don't like to compare ourselves to who are the ones who have maintained capital punishment. Uh, I think largely it's because of the federal system, in other words, because it's ultimately up to the states whether or not to have capital punishment and the states uh, where it has prevailed. But I think there's, there's certainly the element of racial control and racial bias that figures into why states have decided to keep it. The majority of people, I think, today would, uh, in, in the country as a whole, would abolish the death penalty if you had life without parole as an alternative, which you have in every state. But on a state-by-state basis, you find different levels of enthusiasm um, for capital punishment. And so it's the states, places like Texas, of course, being the most obvious example, where it remains popular and where the politicians in that community are not willing to uh, raise questions about it because they know that their opponents, I think, would charge them with being soft on crime and so forth and so on. So um, I think we're, we're stuck with it as long as we have a federal system, unless, unless the Supreme Court were to find it unconstitutional, which is probably unlikely under the current court, but it could happen at some future time, I suppose. Mary Atwell is Professor Emeritus of Criminal Justice at Radford University. She's also author of Wretched Sisters, Gender and Capital Punishment. In 1951, seven black men from Martinsville, Virginia, were executed for allegedly raping a white woman. It was one of the largest mass executions ever carried out by an American court. Two months ago, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam pardoned each of the Martinsville Seven. And for Pam Hairston, one of the family members of the Martinsville Seven, it was a momentous occasion. And I want to thank Frank Green. And I want to thank you all. And I want you all to put this on the front page of a national newspaper. I want to see this on Oprah. I want to see this on MSNBC, CNN. I want the world to know about the Martinsville Seven. Glory to God for this day. Amen. My next guest is Peter Wallenstein. He's a history professor at Virginia Tech, and he says the Martinsville Seven case brings into sharp focus the racial disparities of capital punishment in Virginia. Peter, a few weeks ago, Governor Ralph Northam issued pardons for each of the Martinsville Seven who were executed in 1951. Why did that happen now? The family has asked for this for decades. Well, you know, people, both family members and various other folks, have been for years, as you say, pushing for this. But suddenly the world had turned, and Democrats controlled both houses and the governorship in the state of Virginia, making it certainly an outlier in Southern politics. And the new Democratic Party is by no means to be confused with the one that ran the state for so long, including when the Martinsville Seven were tried and convicted and sentenced and executed. During the 20th century, 79% of inmates who were executed in Virginia were black. That's an astonishing number. What does that say about capital punishment and the criminal justice system in that state? Well, first of all, start with looking at those numbers. It's a four-to-one ratio in a state that ran more than four-to-one white. And so you're dealing with a multiplier of three, four, five of what the population randomly would suggest you'd expect. And that points toward how much discrimination there was in the way the criminal justice system worked. I mean, I love the fact that criminal justice, when you use the term that way, criminal is exactly the right adjective to deploy. An infamous example of the racial disparity was the Martinsville 7 case. This was one of the largest mass executions carried out by an American court in history, Set the stage for us. Tell us about the Martinsville 7 case. Well, it's a rape case from Martinsville, so Southside, Virginia, 
a fairly young white woman who was spending time on an evening. She's been kind of warned that she might not want to be where she was. Now, there's no question that rape did occur. This is not an issue. But what follows, all kinds of things are problematic. One is that this is not a jury of the defendant's peers. This is an all-white jury, as had traditionally been the case. Now, the trials were remarkably quick. None of those trials took as much as two hours for a unanimous decision to come down. One, guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and two, the death penalty. So here the disparity is really quite remarkable. If you've been convicted of rape itself under Virginia law in 1949, when these trials took place, you could be given the death sentence. Or you could be given any prison sentence so far as it was not less than five years. And when the lawyers who took their case on appeal over the next two years did their homework to show that from the time the electric chair came into effect after 1908 and 1949 and 50, when the original trials took place and then the appeals were clearly launched, 45 total Virginians had been executed for rape. The total number of black defendants was 45. The total number of white defendants was zero. So the disparity there was really quite grotesque, and it's very much what Governor Northam was pointing toward when he spoke in his pardon uh, statement, that it was clear that due process had not been followed and that racially discriminatory sentences had been imposed and carried out. The seven men who were executed had been defended by the great civil rights lawyer, Oliver Hill, who was friends with Thurgood Marshall at the time. Talk a little about Oliver Hill and why he took the case on appeal and what his presence meant to the case. So Oliver Hill is, is, is the great figure in civil rights lawyering in 20th century Virginia. This guy lived to be 100. He lived one quarter of the way through Virginia's history down to the 400th anniversary. He died that year. He's still a fairly young man at this time. Martin Martin is about his age, and Spotswood Robinson, who will go on to become a federal judge. He's about the same age, actually a little younger. So they're fairly early in their long legal careers, but they're just towering figures in the civil rights struggle in general, and certainly in Virginia. So when they take this case on, they see this as an opportunity and a necessity. It's an absolute necessity to spare as many of these men's lives as they can possibly manage. And it's an opportunity because it's the basis for an assault on the very notion that a poll tax should be one of the key ways to screen a jury pool. If a fair trial is a function of having a jury of your peers, then this was not the way to go about it. It is shocking to realize that the death penalty was permitted for rape, rape being a terrible crime, but it does not seem one for which someone should lose their life. And yet seven young men, some of whom probably committed the rape and others who didn't, were executed for it in one fell swoop. Why would that happen in Virginia, in Martinsville, in 1951? Well, I think you're on to something really interesting. You know, the, the, the availability of the death penalty, the availability of the criminal justice system to operate the way it did in so many ways over time. Partly it was to target people who'd done bad things. More than that, it was to target everybody who looked like the people who might have done bad things to say, stay in your place. Was it, or is that just the way we're saying it now? Well, think about it, that Oliver Hill, at the time that he takes this case on appeal, has been elected recently to the Richmond City Council the first African-American to serve in that role in over a half century. Oliver Hill was in federal court time and again on cases regarding segregated and unequal education. He was in court on all kinds of issues through that period, that very period. And so it's a brilliant question you ask, and I've seen nobody make this direct connection. But there it is that we've got an opportunity to act as though it's even-handed, but we know it's not. 
and we have we know what we want to get. We're going to get it. Stay in your place. Stay in your place. Would you say it's more a reflection of how dismissive the white culture was of what they considered to be the lives of African Americans than an actual thirst for execution? I think both pieces are very much a part of it, but I love the way you phrase that question because what the data shows, what the actions show time and again is that black lives did not matter. And that dismissive quality made it easy to shrug off and say, well, you know, they probably deserved what they got and not interrogate it any more closely than that. And I think the thing to go back and look again at the case and, and, and stress is not whether a crime, a brutal crime took place, right. but rather whether the racial identity of the people who were convicted of that crime were, were sentenced in a context where had they been white, no such outcome is conceivable. If it's conceivable, there's absolutely no evidence to support it. Something that never happens is not likely to happen in any given other case. So right. that, that crystallizes the racially discriminatory imposition of the death penalty in this or in so many other cases. Peter Wallenstein, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. I'm so happy to be with you, Sarah. Peter Wallenstein is a history professor at Virginia Tech. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>